You are listening to the Everything You Want to Know About Therapy But We're Too Afraid to Ask podcast with your hosts, Jennifer Trevelli and co-host Jessica Strang. If you ever wanted to start therapy but didn't know where to begin, you've come to the right place. In this podcast, we will offer a Therapy 101 by interviewing experts in the field and asking them anything and everything you wanted to know about therapy before you make your first appointment. Sherry Ricard is a licensed clinical social worker who has spent over two decades working in urban and rural hospital settings supporting clinical teams that provide screenings for suicidal, homicidal, and psychotic patients. While working in Chicago, Sherry developed and supported a medically integrated crisis community support team, and this work won her a National Innovation DNV Award in 2016. She has provided national and local presentations to emergency room audiences, including presentations to the American Hospital Association and simulation training regarding best practices for the Illinois Hospital Association as well. Sherry has been a guest speaker at NPR discussing increased volumes of patients within emergency room settings, has been featured in Social Work Today regarding the roles of social workers in trauma settings, and has provided trainings on compassion fatigue for healthcare professionals. She's provided oversight to a 24-7 behavioral ER team and training program. Currently, Sherry works in private practice, seeing clients in both Illinois and Tennessee, and is also the manager for a national behavioral health telehealth initiative. She is passionate about supporting healthcare providers and students working towards a clinical career. Just a note, this episode deals with the frank discussion of suicide and may be triggering to some listeners. If you or someone you know is currently experiencing suicidal ideation, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255, which offers free and confidential support and know that you're not alone. I am so excited today to talk to our guest, Sherry Ricard. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Welcome, Sherry. We are very excited to have you as well. Yes. Yeah, we are thrilled um, that we were able to work out a time to meet. Uh, We know that you're very busy. Um, And before we get into everything, um, why don't you tell our listeners what your current... um, occupation is, just so we can get a feel for the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is quite sensitive. But before we get into that, can you let everyone know, um, as much as you want to tell us, what what do you do? Okay, sure. Um, So I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm a a clinician that is managing a national healthcare initiative. Um, And we screen patients that are suicidal, homicidal, or psychotic. Um, I'm I'm a social worker. Amazing. And I know that you have offices in two different states in Illinois and Tennessee as well. Yes. And so um, I have recently pivoted and um, I think the pandemic has helped me pivot and kind of seeing some of the healthcare needs, um, some of the services that I think our um, healthcare providers need. Um, so mm-hmm. I've been doing some private practice with an emphasis on really working with healthcare providers. Wow. Incredible. That is. And, and one more follow-up thing. So, so before you did all that, uh, I guess we'll get to the real first question that I usually ask people. How did you get into the field of psychology? What was your first entry into this, um, this arena? Um, you know, I think I was, I was really young when I started. 
Um, and so in my family, we were, I was required to do volunteer work at a very young age. In fact, I think I was 12 when I first started doing volunteer work at the petting zoo. And so, wow. right. I was right there with the goat. And so, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm selling those little cones. But um, I lived in a small town and there was this ominous looking old um, state hospital with the bars on the window and the big pond outside of it. Wow. Looming kind of scary building. And so when I was in high school, I joined health occupations and they required volunteer work as well. And I got to do a volunteer rotation in high school in that building. Um, wow. and, um, you know, I got to do some pretty amazing stuff to be a high school student. I went shopping with patients and got to take them to purchase. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, like that would never happen now. Right? No, never, <laughs> never. And That's so, amazing. yeah. And so, um, I really, um, got into that and did a lot of volunteer work and then, um, you know, went on to college and, um, my undergrad was in recreational therapy. And um, I think shopping must have been a thing for me because I, <laughs> <laughs> I worked my first, one of my first jobs was at Northwestern Memorial Hospital downtown in Chicago. And that was perfect location for shopping, uh, by the way. Yes. yes. And as a recreational therapist, you know, you're really, you're doing activities with the patients. Um, the purpose is to, you know, see what they can tolerate, you know, if they're improving with the medication or the recommendations or what have you. But, you know, I was basically doing fun stuff. And um, this was when the doors, they would let you leave the unit, a locked unit with patients. And so wow, I was really- wow. I, I can't imagine. I'm trying, I'm trying to picture that and I just cannot imagine that. And I'm just trying to think like, you know, oh my goodness, I'd, I'd just be afraid somebody would leave, you know, and I'd come back, you know, empty handed, you know, with well, shopping bags. You know? I would be too now, but at 23, I thought that was a lot of fun. And so, you know, I um, went out with the patients. We would go to the park. We would go on Michigan Avenue. Um, and it was great. Um, and so, but when I was there, you know, I really, um, I realized that I, I wanted to understand and I was really interested in the psychology, um, you know, in a more in-depth way where I really wanted to, um, you know, be able to talk with the patients and, you know, move on to having more therapeutic relationships in a different way. And so I went into graduate school um, and that was kind of my next step. Can you, um, Sherry, we've had on our, as guests on our show, we've had um, a few psychologists and we've had some licensed professional counselors on our show. Can you tell us a little bit more about like the social work side and like your undergraduate in social work and kind of what that looks like for somebody who might be interested in pursuing social work? Sure. Um, you know, I, um, I have a master's degree and um, with that, you're required to do two internships. And um, then, you know, you go on and you can get your license and then you do two additional years of um, supervised um, clinical um, to get your LCSW. And um, the school that I went to was really considered, um, you were considered a generalist. Um, and, um, it's, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of similarities probably between the counseling schools and social work schools. I think that mm -hmm. I've supervised a lot of um, counselors and social workers. And one of the things that I noticed that is the most different about them when they have graduated and kind of gone into their internship is that the counselors are more focused on the diagnostic piece as far as this is, um, I think, what belongs to the DSM. This is, you know, these are more details specific to that, that characteristic of the diagnostic piece. And social workers are more looking at, you know, the system issues um, and kind of those kinds of um, bigger global stressors. Um, and kind of focus on um, kind of a general perspective. 
That's really interesting. I feel like that I, one of the things that Jen, you know, had just mentioned was we do have people that have different um, that studied and work in different areas of psychology. So I think that's valuable information, especially sometimes we do have um, graduate students that listen to this podcast. And so thank you for that explanation. Um, after you finished your graduate work, what did you do next? What, what, um, what experiences did you have work-wise um, before you got to where you are right now? Right. Well, I never really left. And so when I, <laughs> yeah, so when I was in graduate school, I really wanted to do my internship in the emergency room. Um, and I lived in the Lakeview area and really wanted to um, be at, um, actually, I wanted to be at Ravenswood. It was fantastic. It was like the best crisis team, you know, around. And um, they, I called and left a lot of messages and they never <laughs> called me back. And oh, no. so, no, right. And so it was like a total failure. And so um, they never called me back. And so I, I got an internship at Illinois Masonic um, with the trauma okay. service. And I talked them into letting me go into their emergency room like once a week for like this little period of time. And um, it turns out that advocate came in and the systems merged and the crisis teams merged. And um, the crisis team that I wanted to be a part of um, came to our hospital system. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I keep looking for you. Yes, yes it all worked out. out. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Like, I, I think, you know, it, it, it's um, kind of a lesson if you are a graduate student and you're listening as um, being tenacious. Um, because, mm -hmm. you know, I, I really pushed my way into the emergency room. They had never had an intern in the emergency room before for, you know, the social work program. And um, they let me into that program. And um, my supervisor ended up having a medical issue. And they didn't have anywhere to put me. So they left me in the emergency room. And then, um, yeah, and, um, <laughs> I loved it there. And so when I graduated, they offered me a position on overnight um, and I stayed and I took it. And then we merged with Ravenswood. And then, um, you know, I did overnights um, for nine years in the ER and then um, started moving into leadership and ended up in the position of the person that never called me back. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you would call somebody back if they did call you. you yeah, know, that was, that's Yes. And so, um, you know, I'm sure it was a, an oversight. They were quite busy. Totally. Yeah. And so, um, but we did end up having um, a quite large training program and um, really um, were very supportive um, in the time that, that I was there. And I, I hope that they're still continuing that with um, taking in a lot of um, social workers, PsyDs, um, psychology um, trainees to um, support them in both the outpatient and inpatient um, arena. I think that's just so interesting, don't you, Jen? Because I, I think the ER would be a fantastic place, like groundbreaking place for people to go to, to see the whole gamut of yes. situations that arise, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I know. I, I remember we talked to one of our other guests and she had worked, um, spent some time working in the emergency department and just her talking about her experience. And that really kind of gave her a good picture of what population she would like to work in. And, and I would imagine that there's probably not much dull time in your work <laughs> there. No, it's pretty exciting. Um, you know, in the emergency room, we were um, seeing behavioral health patients, but we were also doing anything else that came into the emergency room that needed um, social work attention. And so it would be a sexual assault, a child abuse case, a trauma. Um, we identified, you know, the does that came in, the patients that were unidentified that came in as a level one trauma. Um, you know, so we were right there in the middle of whatever was kind of going on. Wow. And I think it's, I mean, it's amazing because I know I would imagine a large number of individuals who go to the emergency room 
there is a there is a large population that are struggling with mental health and go in there because of some mental health struggles to be able to have somebody with that background in the department who can then be able to kind of help in situations when there is a crisis for them is great. Yes, I, I do think it's really important. Emergency rooms can look so um, different across the country for um, someone that's having a behavioral health crisis mm-hmm. and space. And so I do think it's really helpful to have somebody there that can um, support them. Absolutely. While, while you were working in the ER, um, did you begin, because I know one of the biggest uh, reasons why we wanted to have you in this, in this podcast today was because of your work with suicide prevention. Can you tell me a little bit about how that work started? Was it in the ER? Was it another area that you were just interested in learning about? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was um, in the emergency room. And so, um, because when a patient would come into the emergency room and identify that they were feeling suicidal, um, we would do um, a full screening then to determine um, what level of care that patient needed um, in collaboration with the physician and the treatment team and the nurse. Um, And so, you know, really doing more of a thorough assessment. Um, A lot of emergency rooms um, have now implemented, when I started it, you know, it wasn't, I don't believe a standard, but a lot of emergency rooms have implemented um, like the Columbia, like a screening protocol Mm -hmm. um, when they enter the emergency room. And then, you know, but that's just kind of a a very um, benign, you know, six questions kind of to try to figure out if there's somebody that needs an assessment. Um, And so then a much more detailed assessment can be provided. Um, With kind of when you are meeting with somebody who is struggling with having suicidal thoughts or, you know, having maybe even suicidal thoughts with a plan. Can you talk a little bit more about um, some risk factors that maybe play a role in that? What might make one population at higher risk than another? Kind of what, what may factor into that? Yeah. um, You know, I think that um, that's a really big question and I can think of a (laughs) lot of different ways to answer it. So let me try to answer it with what you're, you're maybe looking for. I, I think that, um, you know, statistically, if you look at it, men are much more successful at suicide, um, uh, completing a suicide than women. If you want to call that success, it's not really success. Mm -hmm. So, but they, um, they complete it much more frequently. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the population, um, I I think that, you know, you have different kinds of patients that you're really, you're looking at. And when you're screening that, um, I think you should treat anybody like they're high risk. Um, The patients sometimes that scare me the most are the patients that um, provide the least amount of information or detail. And so really, you mean like when when you're doing a screening, is that what you mean? Like you're doing a screening and they're like, um, maybe vague suicidal ideation or or not, not having a plan. Is that what you meant? Well, no. So um, I, I, yes. And so um, there's kind of those levels, but I I think like, if you're talking about what individuals are at most risk are, you know, that you uh, become most concerned about, I think mm-hmm. that we have to really look um, deeply at the words that are being said. Um, mm-hmm. You can get a referral for a patient that is suicidal um, that says, you know, I want to die when they're on their way down to get a CAT scan. And, you know, that doesn't really mean that they want to die. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, really asking important questions and understanding what they meant by the word, um, what value those words have. Um, going a little bit in the direction you were talking about, if there is a plan, if there is an intent. Um, but, 
you know, um, I, I think that, you know, um, it's so important to um, not just hear the story that the patient brings to you. Um, you also really have to, um, anytime that you're, you're looking at somebody with that picture, um, it's the best practice to always speak to a collateral. And I think that's very different than how you might function when you're in an outpatient clinic. Um, okay. But, you know, when you're in an emergency room and you're in an emergency kind of crisis situation, um, we always contact a collateral. And it's one of the struggles that I see with the clinicians when they are new in the field and they're mm-hmm. starting, um, or that patients have sometimes, they don't you know, want you to call a collateral. Um, and I don't think that anybody is deliberately um, not telling the truth, um, but I think that we can tell lots of versions of the truth. And when somebody's in a crisis, you really need an understanding of, from somebody that knows them um, what they have been doing and um, what kind of behaviors they have had, um, you know, what kinds of, um, you know, are they isolating more? Are they more depressed? Have they not been taking their medicine? And what I frequently find is what you find from families or friends um, or collaterals is very different than um, what you find from the patient's initial story. Mm. And so I think it's crucial to um, have um, people in that um, people in that patient's life that you can talk to, to better understand what the situation looks like. And, and I think that's so interesting that you bring that up, Sherry, because, you know, getting that additional information, you're absolutely right. As I, I'm going to speak as a clinician that we don't always are, we're not always afforded that, that, that chance to speak to other people. Um, when somebody says, uh, some suicidal ideation in the office, especially if they're coming on their own individual therapy, I'm thinking about, but when you're in the ER, it really, it sounds like having that collateral information will change the course of that patient's treatment in the ER and what happens next. Right. And so it significantly changes, um, what happens next. Um, because, you know, when you have a patient that comes in and you see them and they say, you know, well, I'm suicidal, but I'm feeling better now. I've been here. I want to, you know, and then you're like, okay, fine, but let me call somebody in your life. And you call that person in their life and they're like, well, they sent me three text messages saying they couldn't go on and, you know, they quit their job. Mm -hmm. Um, the world looks very different then, you know, and, um, you have to really kind of see, um, how to best help that patient. Um, and so when you're asking me like, what is the, you know, what type of risk factors or what, what do those patients look like? I really, I think that we have to, um, you know, we're always looking at the categories. Is it more of the, you know, this population and more of that population, but I think all populations, anybody Mm -hmm. emotional crisis. Um, needs to kind of be looked at individually and monitored and individuals that give you the least amount of information are, are, are the most restrictive in letting you contact people that know them um, mm-hmm. are dangerous and scary to me. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not necessarily knowing what's going on with them. Absolutely. And I would imagine with just the past couple years, these past two years of, you know, with our current pandemic and the, you know, initial, initially with the pandemic, there was that rise in isolation and, and, you know, we, everybody was told you need to isolate. And then the loss of being able to do a lot of different activities, loss of, for a lot of individuals, a loss of their job, a loss of family members, all of those factors kind of playing in a role. I would imagine the suicide rate or even just the rate of those with suicidal ideations increased 
I would imagine quite a bit these past couple years. And that probably also shifts what the risk factors are and what somebody might look like coming in with suicidal thoughts and in crisis. Right. Well, I think, you know, risk factors, again, are different for everybody. And so, you know, risk factors, if you're 12, are very different than the risk factors that you have if you're 45. And so, again, looking at that person as an individual and really, um, you know, understanding where they are in their lifespan and what is important to them and what is stressful for them um, kind of helps you to identify those environmental risk factors, um, you know, are those social risk factors. But ironically, this is, you know, and the data is still coming in, but the suicide rate went down during the pandemic. Really? Yeah, that's what, you know, um, the current data is suggesting. Now it could be skewed, right? You know, Mm -hmm. over um, doses went up, right? For deaths for overdoses. And so you you don't, there's, there's a lot in there that I think it's going to take us several years to understand and sort out. Um, and I don't know if, um, you know, um, I don't know if, you know, we come together in a time of crisis. Think about it at the beginning of the pandemic, right? People were like joining each other and singing out their windows. I remember that Mm -hmm. in Italy. I remember that people (laughs) were playing pianos and I was like, that's amazing. Right. Nobody did that in my neighborhood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's this camaraderie. And so, you know, and some stress was decreased. Um, initially, yes. because if you were bullied at school, you no longer had to go face your bully. You know, if you were really stressed out at your job, well, now you were at home and you had your dog sitting on your lap. And so, right. you know, while, you know, um, there was job loss and, you know, there were, there was illness and there were things, um, the, the data suggests that the, the suicide rate went down. Um, there are some, some pockets of um, age groups where it did go up. Um, and, um, I think that, you know, we will want to really support, um, you know, going forward because I don't know what we're going to look like when we come out of this, this time. No, I completely, that, that's, that's to me so astounding, especially because I read on a daily basis, how much obviously the pandemic has affected the mental health for so many young people that are not in their routine, uh, daily lives of being in school. I know in the Chicagoland area. A lot of Chicago public schools were out until today, I believe. Um, and so this disruption of life, you know, I, I would have thought it would have gone the other way, Sherry, right? Mm-hmm. And that would have been more of um, the an increase in suicides or at least, uh, you know, and I also wonder, uh, has there been a dramatic increase of non-COVID, more mental health um, visits to the ER? I guess that would be like my other question too. Maybe it's been, it's been caught more. I don't know, not, not caught more, but more services have been available to people that are just seeking that out? I don't know. You know, I don't know that we have the right data either. You know, I've seen waves of where, you know, the emergency rooms felt really busy and waves where they did not feel busy at all. Um, And, you know, if you talk to your partners that work on psychiatric units, they will tell you that the patients they're seeing are sicker than they've ever been Mm -hmm. because they have not been going for medicine or not getting treatment. But on the other side of that, you know, you have a lot of therapists that are doing telehealth now. And so um, services are getting to individuals that never would have been able to receive services. And so Absolutely. there's a lot going on. But when you're talking about those age group groups and, you know, where we saw some spike in suicidal behavior, it was with, um, again, you know, um, we've really got to watch out for the men and the boys um, but it was with those, you know, um, I think maybe 10 to 14 year olds, and then maybe again, like 25 to 34 year olds. 
um, where you did see spike. Um, and so, you know, but I really think um, at the at the core of this is treating everybody. I, I talk a lot to my, my teams that I work with about behavioral health vitals and mm -hmm. treating mental health the same way that you would treat um, going to the dentist, um, you know, or any other kind of medical or routine procedure. Um, and really everybody has to pay attention all the time to um, each other, to take care of each other and see um, where the risk factors are falling. Absolutely. So what would be some, can you tell us what would be some things that a, a person could look for in, you know, somebody that's a friend of theirs or a family member, what would be some signs or things that they should be looking for? Right. Well, I think, you know, um, you can, you can look for the, the mental health signals, you know, if we're talking about, you know, behavioral health that are probably uh, more publicized and we're, we're paying attention to, and that, you know, is, does the patient have a history or does the individual have a history of depression? You know, are they isolating more? Is there a mood disorder in their family system? Um, is there a history of suicides in their, in their family system? Because we, we learn great coping strategies and we can also um, learn from, you know, uh, the people that are around us some, some very scary ways to manage um, grief or um, mm -hmm. stressors. And so I, I think that, um, but again, it goes to, if you're talking up to a, a 10 year old, you know, are they crying more frequently? Are they, um, you know, what are they drawing pictures of? You know, um, what kinds of cartoons are they interested in? What kinds of games do you see them playing? If you're, you know, looking at, you know, a teenager, an older teenager, you know, what kinds of things are they posting? What kinds mm -hmm. of videos are they interested in? Um, you know, are they isolating? Are they, do they have friends? Um, you know, has their eating changed? Has their sleeping changed? I think for adults, you start looking, you know, you're looking at all of those pieces, but again, looking at the individual. And so an adult, you know, have they recently quit their job? Um, you know, are they having, um, you know, um, a lot more stress in their life? Um, is there more alcohol abuse or, or is there more substance use? Um, you know, are they going through a life change that um, is really difficult? Um, a, a divorce, um, some type of, of stressor um, like that. Um, so I, I think that, you know, looking at the risk factors, looking at, you know, if somebody is not doing well emotionally, you know, if they're doing something different than they've normally done, um, you know, um, I think paying attention to those, those red flags is, is crucial. I think that's great. I think that's very great information because I think oftentimes um, people will, you know, I'll have clients, let's say in individual therapy that, you know, when you're in therapy, it's, we, we tell stories, you know, stories of our life, stories of our past. And so in the process of telling stories, my clients have said to me, this has happened, or I'm worried about this friend and, and what should I do or what should I look for? And, and I think you named a lot of really great um warning signs, those red flags, what we should be looking for. And then I guess my next question to follow up on that would be, and then what should we do with that? You know, because not every person is going to be a skilled clinician mm -hmm. such as yourself or, or, or in an ER or, or have this knowledge. What, what would you recommend, um, you know, as, as much as you can, I know it's a pretty big question. What would you recommend um, after we're seeing this warning signs, what a lay person could do, somebody that's not in the business? Ask the question. Um, okay. Are you okay? 
are you feeling suicidal? It's amazing that nobody wants to ask that question. <laughs> Why do you I, think that is, Sherry? Because I feel, I, actually, it's funny that you said that because right before you come, came on, Jen and I were talking, I'm like, suicide is the hardest one for me to talk about as a therapist sometimes, you know, with my other therapy friends, you know, not in session, but, and so why do you think that it's the question no one wants to ask? Just like, I don't want to ask sometimes. Well, I don't know. That's really interesting. Um, I'm so curious, but I, I don't know because I don't mind asking that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've asked it over and over and over. And so, you know, um, because there's nothing wrong with, I think people are afraid of the answer. And so, Mm, yeah. You know, and it's so interesting to me. And I'm just going to go back to the emergency room. And I, I'm not trying to make light of any of this. I, it's very, very serious. And I feel very passionate about it. But, you know, I mean, nurses and doctors, you know, I mean, like, you know, I've had nurse managers come to me before in my career and said, you know, my nurses just don't want to do this. They don't want to ask these questions. They don't want to ask. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You'll straight cast that patient, but you're not going to have suicidal. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. so I think that they're afraid of the answer. You know, like if, if somebody falls apart in front of me and they tell me that they are, then what am I going to do? Um, you know, and just being suicidal, that's not a permanent condition. You can be suicidal on Monday and not be suicidal on Tuesday. And so, you know, but the biggest thing that you can do to prevent suicide is to interrupt it. And that the biggest interruption, the best method of interrupting it is, you know, removing means and giving the person time to rethink this. And so, you know, you have to ask the question. You have to say, wow, you know, you um, are sleeping until noon and you used to get up every morning at eight. Are you feeling Mm. depressed? You know, are you feeling suicidal? We shouldn't be afraid of the word. And Mm -hmm. then it tells us, yes, I am. It's, it's, that's great that they told you because it would be horrible if they didn't tell you. But if they tell you, then you can do something. You can call a suicide hotline. You can get a suicide text line. You can, you know, contact a local emergency room. You can go to a lot of communities have like kind of these, um, you know, more community-based support um, crisis services. And so, you know, then you go and find somebody to talk to to really kind of uncover what that that means because it can mean a lot of things. I think that's fantastic because I feel like you really did like right now we talk a lot about demystifying therapy and the process to people because the not wanting to ask is really then hearing the answer yes I am suicidal and then the follow-up is and now what and now you just gave the uh, now what now you listen now you give time now you disrupt you know by by giving that time by by offering services you know or at least saying I don't know either and I can help you through this so I think that's fantastic Yeah. And I think I feel, I mean, I feel like I hear from people like, oh, well, if I bring it up, if they're not really thinking about suicide and I bring it up, now I'm going to plant that into their head. Now I'm going to, like, if I bring it up, now I'm going to make them think about it if they weren't thinking about it before. And I think that kind of misconception of what can, of what will happen can oftentimes stop people from asking that question as well, I think. Right. Mm -hmm. That is so interesting. And you are both accomplished therapists. And so, you know, so if you're feeling that way, you know, I think we have so much work to do, right, in the general public of getting um, people just to feel comfortable with saying, hey, are you suicidal? But Mm -hmm. it's cartoons. You see it everywhere. I mean, have you watched anime? I mean, like, you know, and so... We, no, we, I haven't. <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's, you know, that's really big with teenagers. And so, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, you, you have to, we, we really have to get comfortable with, you know, talking about it and saying the word. 
you know, one of the things that's so um, amazing to me, um, I just posted it on my, my LinkedIn account, but like, you know, I I didn't know this until recently because I've been thinking a lot more about our healthcare providers because I'm really worried about that group. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, um, physicians, um, if in many states, if they identify mental illness um, within, you know, taking, moving towards their licensure, you know, for their, their regular licensure, then they're afraid that they will somehow be penalized and not be able to maintain their licensure. Um, wow. Significant. <laughs> Think about our, 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 our healthcare heroes that are handing out referrals maybe five or six times a day and then too afraid to tell anybody that they're depressed or they're all mm-hmm. that it could jeopardize their career. Um, I, I, I completely agree with you. I, there was, for whatever reason, I, I built a little niche of seeing therapists you know, as a therapist, you know, and that is one of the biggest um I guess, misconceptions amongst the therapists, like, I don't want to be known to be seeing a therapist. But what I've really seen in the last, I'd say, five or six years or so, is a lot of people just openly admitting, I go to therapy, or I'm a therapist, and I go to another therapist, you know, and, and I, there's been such a shift. And I don't know where it's coming from. I definitely think it's generational. Um, I, I see that more often now that people are able to talk about it more. But I, I completely agree with you, Sherry, in the sense of, there's such burnout and fatigue mm-hmm. and especially compassion fatigue that I'm reading about constantly about folks that are working, you know, as frontline workers in the hospital or working um, in different areas of healthcare. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and I wonder too, I mean, I think there's also this, um, while I feel like in some areas of mental health, the stigma is, is getting a little bit less and, I still think sometimes with suicide, there is still, especially if you're in the profession, there is still a stigma attached to it. And I think a lot of people don't realize that it can be okay to have suicidal thoughts. Like that can be something that can be okay and doesn't necessarily mean if you have a thought, you're going to end up locked up somewhere. And I think sometimes there's that, they they jump from point A and go all the way to point Z and they're afraid that's what's going to happen. And so I think they're sometimes afraid to talk about what they're feeling because they don't know what's going to happen. And you brought up so many great points right there. And that's really what I'm talking about. I mean, I should probably be more concrete, you know? And so mm-hmm. like those factors, like, you know, if there's comorbidity, if there's a, a history of pain, there's all kinds of things that, that make you, you know, more, more likely, but really what you just said at, at getting at, you know, just because you've said that you're suicidal doesn't mean you go from point A to point B you know, into a psychiatric unit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can have fleeting thoughts of suicide and have no plan or no intent and have lots of safety networks around you. And you can, you know, if you're still, you know, you can see more clearly um, and, you know, that, that feeling may pass. And so we have to be able to talk to each other and ask the question. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think what you had said is, you know, some really great tips for the, the, the person that's maybe helping the, the person that has those uh, suicidal uh, ideation. Um, I think another thing I would ask is, you know, what else would you consider to be an important practice, let's say, um, when it comes to grief or, or even the loss of, I, I don't know how much you deal with that in, the, in your current uh, location in, in the ER, but how much do you work with, you know, maybe if somebody has... Um, completed a suicide and that you're aware of this or how do you work with that? What is your best practice with working with grief and, and the people that are left behind? You know, that's a great question. And I'm certainly not an expert in that area, although I have seen more than my fair share over the years of completed mm-hmm. suicide. 
And so, um, you know, and I think that it is um, devastating for the families and um, for the individuals that are left behind. And I don't know if you're familiar, there was, um, you probably both are, but there is um, a man that is a pretty um, well-known um, public speaker. Um, John Hines might be his name. Um, mm-hmm. Dumped from the San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh, yes, yes. You know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? And he mm-hmm. talks about like how when he, you know, he was so depressed and then he gets up there and the minute he let go, he was like, oh my gosh, I wish mm-hmm. I wouldn't have done this. Right? He was like, you know, I, I really wish that I, I wouldn't have done this. And he survived. So he gets to teach and help people to um, survive these feelings. But I, I don't think that in the minute that um, individuals are moving forward with a very impulsive plan, that they're really thinking so much about their family and friends and loved ones that they're leaving behind and how that will impact them. There's just this overwhelming sense of, you know, hopelessness. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and it, it's not a clear clear thought. It's a, it's a very um, permanent plan for mm-hmm. a very temporary problem. And, um, you know, so I've been able um, to sit with families during the initial grief. Um, and I have done a little bit of follow up. Um, I think having, um, you know, the typical stuff, right? Having support groups, having networks mm-hmm. that you can connect with of other family members or other friends that have had this experience to go through um, and connecting with it. I think if they're small um, children um, or um, teenagers, um, making sure that, you know, um, within that family system, they really get the right support um, because they've just learned um, a way to manage a crisis um, that is not a good way to manage it. Um, right. And so, you know, that's one of the screening questions, right? When you're asking somebody, you know, do, do you have anybody in your family who's ever committed suicide? Because that mm-hmm. increases the risk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in working with the grief for the families, I think really helping, um, it's all about connectivity. Um, you know, making sure that individuals are connected to um, people that they can talk to, that they can feel comfortable with, that understand them. And that's, it's, it's circular because that starts with the patient when you're asking about being suicidal and it goes right. to, you know, the full circle to the family when you're working with them um, regarding the grief, if somebody did um, complete a, a suicide. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's definitely, and I'm so glad that we're able to talk with you today about this, because I think it's, it's such an important topic. Um, And so we've kind of talked about some of the warning signs, some of the risk factors. Um, Can you talk with us a little bit about protective factors and how we can help to grow some of those protective factors um, in somebody? Absolutely. And so, you know, and I'm going to sound the same and I'll try to be a little <laughs> bit more um, concrete, but uh, you know, the protective factors are different for everyone too. Um, you know, there's, there's some similarities and so how they cope with their stress, um, you know, their tolerance for their tension regulation, tolerance for frustration, um, their social support system, um, you know, religious beliefs can be a protective factor. Um, if you're an adult, having children can be a protective factor. Um, you know, having a loved one that you're caring for, having a pet, having, you know, um, but it's all, it's all of that connectivity to things. Um, and so, you know, um, but you have to kind of marry the two with the risk factors and the protective factors. And so if my risk factor, when I, when you're really exploring what I meant when I said I was suicidal, if my risk factor is I just lost my job um, and, you know, now I can't pay for my house, 
um, and I have all of these bills, you know, my protective factors, um, you need to really focus on how I'm going to financially manage myself. Um, you know, so there needs to be, I, I think that, you know, we give blanket protective factors, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I really do believe that if you're going to do a good job and it, your, your intervention is going to be patient centered, it has to match. And so, um, you know, you really need to look at the two um, that fit together. I think that's great. I, you know, I, I do have a follow-up question based on your work in the ER, because I, I think one, again, one of the things that we like to do with this podcast is the purpose of it really was to uh, provide kind of more information for folks that maybe have never been in therapy or don't really know anything about psychology or anything about um, the practice. One of the things that I think that we kind of brought up a little bit today was, you know, the fear of, of reaching out, the fear of going, like Jen said, from point A to Z, you know, quickly, if, if I say that I'm suicidal, then all of a sudden, what's going to happen? So Sherry, could you pretend, you know, to walk us through the ER person that comes in and does say that? And then, you know, because I think part of it is, it seems so scary for a lot of people. That's why they don't go to the ER for these, these things. Um, but I, I'd like to kind of maybe, you know, walk through what that would look like with, you know, somebody that's in the ER that's psychologically minded or is prepared to ask those questions. You know, you said some of the nurses sometimes don't want to, and I know it's hard. What would that look like for someone coming in? You know, just, I have these thoughts and I've somehow come to the ER, however it is that I came here. Right. Um, I think it's going to look very different depending on what emergency room Mm -hmm. you walk into and what resources they have, but we'll pretend that they have great resources. Okay. Yeah. Best case scenario. We're going to do best case scenario. And so, you know, when you walk into the emergency room, you will meet with a triage nurse and she will, she or he will do um, probably the Columbia. And it's like a six question kind of, you know, are you, um, you know, are you having thoughts about killing yourself? Um, Different kinds of questions. And, you know, depending on how you score on that or what have you, you know, or if you just, and they do that with, as a standard kind of tool, but, you know, if there's anything that shows up, or if you say I'm suicidal, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling really anxious, um, then they're going to um, bring you back into the emergency room. And um, depending on the severity of your presentation, um, you know, if you say I'm suicidal with a plan to, um, you know, um, overdose on pills, they may very well find somebody that is going to sit close to you. Um, to kind of help you um, feel safe and protected and to watch over you while you're in the emergency room. And so, and they would call that a sitter. Um, And then, um, you know, a lot of emergency rooms have crisis workers that either come from the community or are embedded in the emergency room. And um, they will, or some ERs even have psych residents and um, they'll come and do a full evaluation with you to understand um, exactly, you know, what that means. Um, You know, when you're saying you're suicidal, how long have you been feeling that way? Um, What caused you to feel that way? Um, What is your plan? What is your intent? What, you know, um, do you have other people in your life that have recently done anything like this? Um, What do you have to live for? What are you looking forward to? Um, And they'll evaluate lots of other symptoms. You know, is there any psychosis? Um, you know, what is the substance use looking like? Um, is there any um, risk of wanting to hurt other people? And so they're going to do kind of a full evaluation and you'll get a couple of those um, if, mm-hmm. if you have a crisis worker because the nurse is gonna ask you several questions. The doctor is going to ask you several questions. 
if it's a training hospital, you're going to have maybe a medical student residence, mm-hmm. um, and you'll have a crisis worker also um, kind of trying to figure that out with you. And the goal is to get you to the right level of care. And so it may be an inpatient psychiatric unit, but it may very well be more of an outpatient setting with connecting to a therapist or connecting to a partial hospital program, um, you know, or other resources. Wonderful. I really mm-hmm. appreciate that because I think that really helps people that, um, you know, might, might have a very different perception, you know, like when you talked about when you first saw that state-run hospital and, you know, that kind of like, it looks so ominous and the, the building was so <laughs> frightening for a lot of people without having the bars, even though that some of these hospitals are beautiful and very modern, that's the feeling, you know, mm-hmm. that ominous feeling like what's going to happen in there, you know? And I think you gave a very clear explanation of uh, it being just a, a, a manner of which a person can go there get their, their, you know, those questions asked of them that are pretty standard, but it's really to make sure they're going to the right place. So mm-hmm. when you were talking before about how we need to start equating mental health, uh, as we do with our, you know, overall wellness, our physical wellness, this is the same thing. If we were doing like a cancer screening, you want to make sure that you're, you're going to get the right treatment and not go from A to Z based on whatever you're coming in with. And that's the same thing you're saying with suicide, um, that you're trying to make sure that we're going to address this in the most proper way and not always go to inpatient. That's not always the goal. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, if they're following best practices, they're going to call a collateral um, so that Mm -hmm. they can, um, you know, speak with somebody who knows that individual who can really get an understanding because you can't always see yourself. You don't, you know, and so so they can get a better understanding of what has been going on in that individual's life. And I have to say for anybody that um, is a therapist in an outpatient clinic, it is incredibly important. One of the biggest areas that um, where there's a miss is when um, a therapist will send a patient to the emergency room and they don't send any information. Mm-hmm. They don't call the emergency room and say, hey, my patient's coming and this is what happened in the session and I want you to know and be alerted or they don't do the involuntary paperwork that might be needed to go with that patient. And so, wow. you know, if you have a, it, this happens all the time. And, if, and then, you know, if we can find the clinician, great. Or if we know they exist or if the patient tells us, you know, but they don't always tell you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and you've got a clinician then that's doing one single evaluation um, that may think that the patient's safe, but then you have the the therapist who has that wonderful working relationship and has known that person for, you know, months or years, who's now feeling alarmed and wants them to go in. There mm-hmm. really needs to be that warm handoff so that you can best understand what that patient needs. So, so outpatients have to do their, their due diligence as well. You know, they have to kind of pass that along so that everyone can be on the same team and, and kind of work in the same direction. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Sherry, I know you've demystified quite a bit for us on um, suicide and suicidal ideations and the process that somebody might go through for help. Is there anything else that you'd like that you feel would be important to help kind of demystify for us? Yeah, I think, you know, um, talking about what you do to um, decrease um, the possibility of a suicide is really important. Um, and, you know, knowing that 50% of the completed suicides or more um, happen with a firearm is pretty significant. And so, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that needs to be done in an emergency room or um, in an outpatient practice even is to have a really good 
um, safety plan that is a living document that's changing as the patient changes, as the client changes. And so, um, you know, and one of those um, components of that document, there's several things that it should have embedded within it, um, you know, coping strategies, triggers, um, social support, um, a couple numbers for hotlines, um, you know, maybe the linkage to their outpatient appointment, but it should also have means restriction. And so, you know, and that can be very different depending on, again, that very, that unique individual that's presenting in front of you, you know, if they come in and say, you know, I'm thinking about overdosing on my blood pressure medication, then, you know, they shouldn't be going home with their blood pressure medication, um, right. you know, where they, well, they need that, of course, mm-hmm. but you know what I mean? they shouldn't have just open access to that. You really need to work on a plan with who's going to help give you that medication, you know, or how are you going to manage that? And you, you always need to ask, um, you know, in the emergency room, when they're sending you out, they always ask you if you're wearing a seatbelt, right? Do you wear a seatbelt? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and so if they should be asking, you know, um, do you have a firearm in your house and mm-hmm. where is it located? And, you know, um, there's a lot of um, good literature that supports, you know, it's just a matter of time. You just need to give that person time to rethink and to imagine that they can get through this very difficult moment. And so even delaying, you know, by having, you know, the bullets locked up at the neighbor's house and having, you know, them removed from the firearm or what have you gives that person enough time to talk to somebody, get help, rethink what they're doing. Um, you know, one of the things that's, that's so interesting about, you know, um, the completion of suicide, when you're looking at like men versus women, men choose firearms, um, Mm -hmm. women choose pills Mm -hmm. and, you know, pills are something that you can be like, oh my gosh, I ingested that, but now I can go to the emergency room and get help. Um, but if you choose a lethal means where it's really not very reversible, um, you know, then you, you can't really correct that moment. And so I think that um, whether it's, you know, in the outpatient office, you know, or in the emergency room or on the medical floor, having that individual leave with a safety plan is really, really important. Thank you for that. I really, I that that's, that's incredible. I think that that's really great, even for people that are not clinicians to know um, another way for them to help and to be, you know, helpful to someone that is feeling suicidal and that they know may have firearms or any access to some lethal types of weapons. Um, just a final question before um, we, we wrap up a little bit. Is there something that you wish people knew about your work, about psychology, anything that you want to, you know, any one of those frequently asked questions, anything that you want to kind of just you know, put out there that you feel would be just really important for people to know, whether it's about suicide, whether it's about therapy, anything at all? Wow, that's, that's a big question. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always ask those big ones. I'm sorry. Right. Those are great questions. Um, you know, I, I think that um, it, it's the same thing that I've already said, you know, I think that we have to really look at behavioral health vitals, and um, on, a, on a daily basis, you know, paying attention. To, I saw this commercial where, um, you know, if, even if you're not diabetic, you can, you know, be monitoring your insulin levels, <laughs> you know, and I was thinking, you know, what if we could just be monitoring our, our emotional mental mm-hmm. health, you know, all the time and be really, um, you know, paying attention to that because um, I think that um, it's so important, um, not just for um, the short term, um, but for the long term. Um, if you're looking at like the compassion fatigue or the vicarious traumatization, um, you know, our, our suicide prevention. And so I, I think doing that and then I think really listening and talking to each other, 
you know, um, and not assuming things. One of the mm-hmm. biggest things that um, I think I work with new clinicians on um, is that um, we assume things about individuals that you don't know unless you ask. Um, I had this really great experience um, with an individual that was um, psychotic and um, held in the emergency room um, to be evaluated and stabilized. And he was talking a lot about, um, you know, being assaulted and chased. And it really matched, um, you know, the diagnosis for this individual and, you know, what you might think um, could be true. Um, But nobody really listened to him. And so one of the programs that we developed was like, um, you know, was a walk-in, like you would go from the emergency room across the street and be right into a community outpatient setting. And, um, you know, the team that was on that side of the, the emergency room process is like, hey, you know, they should have never discharged this individual. They're still saying the same thing. And so mm-hmm. you know, I went over there and I, I sat down and I um, started talking to him. And, you know, he was able to show me um, all the things that he was talking about in his cell phone. And it was true. Um, and so I called, wow. I know. And so I called his family and I called his doctor and I'm like, hey, you know, this is what he's saying. And I understand this is the diagnosis. And I did it with him. You know, I joined with the patient and I said, but this is, you know, what he's showing me on Facebook and, you know, and what he's showing me, you know, in his life. And it all makes sense to me. And what do you think? And they said, no, that's absolutely happening. And um, this gentleman needed to get out of the city and we we got him a bus ticket and, and sent him out, you know, but um, wow. I know, right? But, um, you know, I think, you know, just listening to each other and not projecting um, oh, you're cutting yourself. That means you're suicidal mm-hmm. um, or, or what have you. You have to really ask the questions and, and listen to the answers and match them up with the person that's telling you. I love that, Sherry, especially yeah. like you said, for new or, or older clinicians, you know, or people that have been there because there is, um, you know, tendency to assume mm-hmm. um, like kind of like I've heard this story. I can see where this is going. And actually, that's never true. You never, I never <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I never I'm always like turning for a twist. It's always a twist, you know, like a plot twist happening, you know, and I think it's so important to know that you may think, you know, that story, you know, you might know the theme of it, but you don't know that person's exact story. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, lady. Thank, Thank you. you. And, 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 and before we, we sign off, Sherry, um, if people have questions for you, um, is there an email that you prefer that they message you at or um, uh, some way to communicate with you or if they want to look you up? What would be the best way for folks to do that? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I am on psychology today. Um, and I think those have embedded within them an email contact and a phone number. Um, wonderful wonderful we've taken up a lot of your time and we really appreciate this was really a special episode for us because I think it's important to talk about suicide I think it's Mm -hmm. a hard discussion that people have Um, I know it's one that Jen and I have a lot of in our work Mm -hmm. uh, but um, but I think it's something that most people don't know that we talk about at work or um, you really have brought a lot of information I think that is so important so we really appreciate that yes thank you so much Thank you. I think what you're doing is wonderful. And so, um, and there's always help. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I feel like that, that's, that's the biggest key that you've kind of said to us. We, we can always make a disruption. We always can stop the, the process and, mm-hmm. and people are not really alone. And I really appreciate you coming on today. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much. And just, I think, you know, I think the more, like you said, the more you ask the questions, the more you talk about it, the easier it will be. And I think, and I appreciate, we appreciate having you come on to be able 
to shed some light on this for us and for our listeners. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you and have a great evening. And we're going to sign off now. So thank you very much and have a great night. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you listen to good podcasts and keep up with episode updates on Instagram. Follow us at therapy underscore podcast underscore. You can send us messages on topics you'd like to hear or anything that comes to mind. Bye for now. Thank you.